DNB Tech Minute gives you the day's top tech headlines, from the big names in Silicon Valley to the halls of power. If it's making news in tech, we've got it. Check out TNB Tech Minute in the Tech News Briefing feed from The Wall Street Journal. From the opinion pages of The Wall Street Journal, this is Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Hello and welcome to Free Expression from The Wall Street Journal opinion page. I'm Jerry Baker, editor-at-large of The Journal. Thank you very much for joining us. If you're not already a subscriber, please do sign up at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you choose to do your listening. This week, civil war in the Republican Party. What's next for the House GOP? On Tuesday, eight Republicans in the House of Representatives joined forces with 208 Democrats to depose Speaker Kevin McCarthy after just nine months in office. Their complaint, they say, is that, among other things, McCarthy wasn't serious about reining in federal spending at a time of booming deficits. This after the Speaker himself had relied on Democrats at the weekend to pass a stopgap spending bill to avoid a government shutdown. The rebels had earlier blocked a measure that would have actually cut spending by even more. Well, whatever the justification, the result looks like complete disarray in the Republican Party. Again, the GOP conference will now try to elect a new Speaker when it returns next week. Two candidates have so far put themselves forward, Majority Leader Steve Scalise and Judiciary Chairman Jim Jordan. There's also intriguing talk that none other than Donald Trump might show up next week, perhaps even hustle for the job himself. So what does all this tell us about the state of the House Republicans and indeed the party in general? At a time when polls say voters have more faith in the GOP on major policy issues, especially on the economy, than at any time in decades, is this spectacle going to destroy the party's prospects? Well, I'm joined this week by one of the eight who voted to oust Speaker McCarthy, Bob Good, Congressman from Virginia. Congressman Good, thanks very much for joining us. Great to be with you. Thanks for having me. Well, so you're one of the eight who voted to vacate the speakership this week to depose Speaker McCarthy. Give us a simple explanation as to why you think this is the right thing to do. Well, you have to go back to January when we had the speaker battle where I personally voted against him 14 times before... Uh, he was ultimately elected speaker on the 15th ballot. And the main primary reason, or two primary reasons that I gave for having concern about him as speaker or opposing his speakership was number one, in my first term in Congress, two years, I had not seen him leading us to use every tool at our disposal to fight the Biden Pelosi Schumer agenda. And I didn't have the confidence that he would do that as the speaker. Secondly, for the 12 years he had been a part of the leadership team. Uh, admittedly not the speaker, but majority leader or majority whip, when we had majority control during those years, every major piece of spending legislation when we had House Republican majorities was passed with a predominant majority of Democrat votes instead of Republican votes. And that's how you get to what was then $31 trillion in national debt. But however, when he was ultimately voted in as speaker, I pledged my support to him, went to see him and sat down with him. Not quite sure thing I could to help him be successful because the country was counting on us. And that just began to come apart when he began to back away in May from the commitment he made to cut discretionary spending back to pre-COVID levels, which would save us about $100 billion, which is a lot of money and sounds like a lot of money, but not when you consider that we have a roughly $200 billion monthly deficit and you know, over $2 trillion annual deficit that we as a Republican majority will be responsible for. And then he did not live up to his commitment to bring a balanced budget to the floor, which he still has not, even though we've marked it up in our budget committee. 
And he did not live up to his commitment to bring 12 appropriation bills to the floor, which he absolutely committed to do when he was running for and became speaker. And matter of fact, we went on our August district work period. We'd only brought one out of 12, not even passing them, just even bringing the floor for a vote as he continued to try to back away from his commitment to cut $100 billion and I guess to protect the moderates from having to take votes to have spending cuts. And then you had the debt ceiling agreement in early June, which was an unlimited increase to the debt ceiling, once again with majority Democrat voters, you know, that we can spend as much as we want between now and January 25 without running into any debt ceiling. He failed to do what we begged and pleaded with him to do to utilize the debt limit to negotiate spending cuts. Congressman, sorry to interrupt. I mean, I get all of that, but you say that, you know, he failed to do all these things. And of course, you're right in those respects. But isn't a fair picture to describe what he did? He's got to manage a conference that has a majority of a handful of a majority, as we know, as we've now seen, you know, four or five seats. He's got to manage and he wants to try and get broad Republican back. He wants to, he needs to get pretty well unanimous Republican support if he's going to get Republican back bills through the Congress. So wasn't it necessary in order to get anything done and see anything towards, by the way, the debt limit deal actually did end up cutting a certain amount of spending. He did propose a bill last week which would have cut spending. To get anything done, he's got to bring the whole Republican conference along. It seems that you and your seven colleagues have basically said, no, unless we get everything we want, we're actually going to force him out. You're absolutely wrong in your contention there because the spending cuts that he, he, committed to in order to become speaker, and for which all of the moderates and the centrists in the party said, hey, you're the only one that could be speaker. And he commits to those spending cuts, which would take our deficit from $2.2 trillion to $2.1 trillion. Do you think that's all that we wanted? you think we only wanted $100 billion in cuts? you think we only wanted to go from $1.6 trillion in discretionary spending to $1.5? Or do you think that might have been the compromise that we agreed to with him in order to move forward with him as speaker. That was a very modest cut in the grand scheme of things. And it was he who made the commitment and pledge that he would bring the votes. I didn't say he had to pass all 12 bills, but bring them to the floor for a vote well before the deadline of September 30. Tell me why, just because he has moderates in the conference, he can't bring the bills to the floor for a vote, which is a recipe for failure to, that what we're going to protect moderates from having to take votes on spending cuts or take votes generally, a balanced budget amendment. He committed to doing that. We got $33 trillion in national debt and again, a $2.2 trillion deficit this year. So we had already compromised that. We barely passed the limit, say, grow bill that was cutting that spending again to roughly $1.5 trillion. We didn't have a vote to spare on that. Uh, so that was the compromise for a debt limit increase, which most of us had never voted for in the conference. We voted for it because we had some spending cuts and reforms. He ditched all of that in the deal that he made with the president and the Senate Majority Leader Schumer in the debt ceiling agreement, which had essentially no year one cuts in it. And yes, over time, if no Congress comes in and changes what they agree to, it's got two years of spending caps and then four years of waivable spending caps if another Congress doesn't come in and waive it. They claim $2 trillion. That's if those six years, four of which were even not even firm anyway. But then the culmination was, so he fails to bring those bills to the floor even for a vote. He only brought one through August, and then he did bring four more because we basically forced him in the last week of September. And then he immediately surrenders with the... Continuing resolution, unconditional 45-day continuing resolution, 
with no spending cuts or reforms whatsoever, passes 209 to 1 with Democrat votes in the House, 51 to 0 with Democrat votes in the Senate, to keep all the Biden, Pelosi, Schumer spending levels and policies in place for another 45 days. That is failure, and we can't continue down that current track. You just voted with 208 Democrats against 200 Republicans to remove him as Speaker. So, I mean, you like working with Democrats when it suits you, but not when it doesn't. That's also a dishonest representation. I never talked to any Democrats about that. Matter of fact, the belief was that the Democrats were going to bail him out and he was going to continue to be Speaker at the pleasure of the Democrats. He even admitted after the vote he had a deal with Nancy Pelosi for her to give him the votes to save him because she promised him that back in January when he was giving on the motion to vacate to be put back in place after she had taken it out. I talked to no Democrats. I worked with no Democrats. I had no control over how they were voting. However, he needed to retain 218 Republican votes, unless Democrats voted for him, to remain as Speaker. I did the principal thing, which was vote against him as Speaker because he was part of the problem and not part of the solution. That is a total disingenuous to say, if Republicans stand on principle and say, hey, our party is compromising our principles and Democrats don't want to keep Kevin McCarthy a speaker, I don't know why they wouldn't since he was doing what they wanted him to do with all the big spending bills. But that's very different than moderates in our party threatening to vote with Democrats to advance Democrat legislation because they don't want to do the stuff that Republicans committed to do. You've also been critical of him, as you, you just said, for coming up with proposals that will represent, as you said, compromise with the Democrats in the Senate and the president. But isn't that just the logic of the legislative process? The Democrats hold a majority in the Senate and the president is a Democrat and has the right of... Has the right in, of in short order, no. Don't, don't, the you House, have, don't you have to compromise? You can use the House with a one-vote majority to do whatever the majority wants to do. When the Democrats had a very similar narrow majority, they didn't get Republican votes to pass anything out of the House. They used the power, they sent it to the Senate. We could do the same thing. We could pass bills out of the House with Republican votes, send it to the Senate, and now you've got to begin to compromise. But he didn't do that. He didn't pass conservative bills out of the House and send them to the Senate and then go into negotiations. In the case of the debt limit, what he did was he adopted the Biden position where you shouldn't attach cuts to the debt ceiling, and we just did a ceiling agreement. He didn't pass spending bills out of the House, even though we had all voted to those spending levels in the Limit Save Grow bill in April, and he committed to doing it in January, but he wouldn't let us bring the bills to the floor. And then with the continuing resolution, he went ahead and just did an unconditional one that Democrats wanted that kept all the spending levels in place. Now, I was not in favor of a continuing resolution, even though I did vote for one that was conditional the day before. I think continuing resolutions are a failure and lead to more continuing resolution than an omnibus. And I asked for a two-week continued resolution, but still voted for a 30-day one. But what we need to do is stay the course and pass our spending bills. And that's what he should have committed to. And we might have been able to do that by October 14, before there would have been any real pain felt before a federal holiday with respect to a limited, partial, temporary government shutdown. Well, we're going to take a short break there. But when we come back, I'll have more with Congressman Bob Good talking about the ousting of Speaker Kevin McCarthy and the future of the House Republican Party. Stay with us. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. You're listening to Free Expression with Jerry Baker. Don't forget, you can listen to the latest episode anytime on your smart speaker. Just say, play the Opinion Free Expression podcast. Now, back to Jerry Baker. Welcome back. I'm speaking with Republican Congressman 
Bob Good. We're talking about the future of the GOP as he gets ready to elect a new Speaker of the House of Representatives. All right, so let's look at what comes next in the House is in recess for the moment. You're going to be back next week and you're going to start voting presumably for the next Speaker. Have you made up your mind who you're backing? No. As it stands, we have Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan and this intriguing possibility that some of your colleagues are floating of Donald Trump. Of those three, do you have a preference? I won't speak to any preference. I've not decided who I'm going to support, and I wouldn't speak to it even if I did. I want to let the process play out. I am encouraged by the fact that we're going to have a contest, a competition, not a coronation, which is typically what happens where you have got the presumptive candidate and everybody's afraid to challenge or oppose that candidate because there's consequence and retaliation. That's how it really works in Washington. And everybody's invested in the system. They've played the game so they can get their committee assignment or their chairmanship based on their support for the presumptive speaker. That's what happened in January until we disrupted that and made it take at least 15 votes, which was historic. It hadn't happened in 160 years. But in this case, we will bet, test, challenge these candidates and see who can get us to 218. And I believe it will unite us because we'll all have a vested interest in whomever we have to coalesce around to do that. And my hope is will be that once we work that out through the Republican conference, it may take a few hours, it may take a few days, I don't know. But then we'll come to the floor and hopefully vote in that person on the first ballot. Do you have certain red lines in your view? I mean, brother, by the sound of things, given what you think about Speaker McCarthy, give us a sense of what you're looking to hear from the candidates who are going to need to get your vote because they're going to need every single one of these 218 votes. Well, I think they should keep in place the rules that we worked as a conference to negotiate and pass unanimously back first of the year. I think also they need to have a commitment to pass our 12 spending bills. We've already passed four, but passed the eight remaining spending bills as quickly as possible before the November 17 deadline in terms of funding the government. I think they need to utilize the power of the purse to leverage border security and to attack the weaponization of the government against its citizens to hold accountable Secretary Marcus on Homeland Security and Attorney General Garland and Director Ray, FBI Director Ray on, on, in the Justice Department. And then also, I want to know what their plan is with respect to WHO sovereignty. The Biden administration plan to surrender our national sovereignty to WHO in terms of if they declare any kind of an emergency uh, that we're subordinate to the UN and to WHO. It's very, very serious that I'm concerned about. So those would be some of the things that I'm looking to hear from the speaker candidates on what they would do with respect to those. What about Ukraine? That's obviously been an important issue. Would you make a refusal to add any more assistance, or particularly this $24 billion that the Biden administration wants more assistance for Ukraine? We're not supporting that, a condition of your backing candidate for speaker? Well, the expectation actually is we anticipate that there will be those who will try to borrow an additional $80 billion to send to Ukraine. I'm very much opposed to that. So yes, I would like to know what the speaker's views are on that. But I don't want to outline, you know, hey, these are the exact red lines with respect to the absolutes, because none of us can pick a speaker. A handful of us can block a speaker, but it takes 218 to pick a speaker. It's not going to be the ideal or perfect speaker because number one, it doesn't exist. And number two, where we have to get a, you know, 218 out of 221 to agree, it's not going to be someone that any one of us is going to agree with on everything. I know you don't want to, and I totally understand you're not at this point ready to say you're going to back. What do you make of this? idea of Donald Trump. Obviously, it's not constitutionally impossible. You don't have to be a member of the House to be Speaker. And again, several of your colleagues have backed it. Do you think it is real or is it kind of a stunt? I would guess I would characterize it as unlikely. I think the president 
as an executive. I don't think he's one who wants to deal with the day-to-day minutia of the legislative body. And so I wouldn't expect that to happen. The only issue of Ukraine, again, you've made your position very clear and many of your colleagues have too. And I should say that the opposition to significant extra support for Ukraine goes way beyond the eight who voted to vacate the chair this week. It goes quite deep into the Republican Party. Do you think that, again, whoever wins the speakership will take a much less, shall we say, supportive kind of collaborative role with the Biden administration in terms of how it's dealing with Ukraine? I think that's a very real possibility. We were told that McCarthy, what you were told, some people said, I think he denied it, that McCarthy had this side deal with Biden, that obviously that extra appropriation wasn't included in the continuing resolution that passed. Do you think there was some sort of a backdoor deal that the the money was going to get appropriated somehow? While I don't know with any degree of certainty, I do know that Mr. McCarthy was widely considered a dishonest broker and to be untrustworthy during his time in leadership as well as during his time as speaker. And most members privately would acknowledge that while many obviously publicly supported him for whatever self-interest that they might do that. And so I would certainly say it wouldn't surprise me. And the Democrats are pretty smart about leveraging additional items to accomplish what they want. And since they gave him all of their votes, 209 to one, and the one who didn't was because it didn't have Ukraine funding in it, uh, Mr. Quigley, and then the other 51 in the Senate, you know, gave it to him unanimously. Uh, It wouldn't surprise me if it's established true that there was a commitment to bring additional robust borrowing and funding, borrowing to fund more resources for Ukraine. That would not surprise me. So we, we may never know now. Just very quickly on this, is this then the end of any more funding for Ukraine, do you think? I don't know. That ties into the speaker. What we want is a leader and a fighter. We didn't have a leader or a fighter. You're not going to win all the time when you have one house of one branch of government, but you ought to be able to win some. You ought to be able to negotiate some. And we got to build some muscle memory in the Republican Party to learn how to do that. So it depends on the speaker. But I think you've got a plurality of a majority between the Republicans and Democrats right now in the House to provide support for Ukraine as you do in the Senate. So I wouldn't rule it out. So you think it's still possible? Let's move on to obviously the other things have got to happen now in the next few weeks. You, we have the continuing resolution, 45 days, takes us, what, to the middle of November, just before Thanksgiving. Again, assuming that the speaker issue is sorted out in a relatively timely way in the next week or two, what legislation do you want ahead of the expiration of that deadline? Well, what I would like to see is is to pass our remaining eight bills at the spending levels that we're committed to and that implement the policy provisions we've got in those. We send them to the Senate, then you go into conference committee. And I think we should be willing to risk a temporary partial government shutdown in order to force through some policy wins for the American people. We'd like to do that before November 17 and avoid a shutdown, but the Senate hasn't passed any of their bills. And it's interesting how Everybody in the media wants to blame the House Republicans because we've only passed four of our 12 bills, and I've not yet had a media member say to me, what do you say to Chuck Schumer for not funding the government and risking government shutdown because he hasn't passed any of the spending bills? I've not heard anyone ask me that question yet. But the House has done more of its work in the Senate, but we shouldn't set the bar that low. We ought to work to get our remaining eight bills passed as soon as possible. And in those bills, you want to see across the board significant spending cuts and presumably non-defense. And well, I would like to see significant cuts, but what we've agreed to is modest cuts. Yeah. So but, least least modest cuts. but you've got for somewhat less than 45 days now, 39 days or something. You want to presumably go further and you'll have a new speaker, perhaps someone who's more sympathetic to your position. You think you can go further than what we've had so far? I think the realistic goal is to just meet the commitment that we've already made to one another within the Republican conference and to bring those bills to that level. I don't have 
ambitious hopes that we're going to do more than that. But if you asked, I was clarifying on what I would like to do, not what yeah. I have some reasonable expectation that we're going to do this time. Border spending and defense, obviously, you want more on that or were you satisfied with that? Well, we already passed our defense bill and it does increase defense bill spending. We passed our homeland security bill and it does increase homeland security spending. And that was a compromise, quite frankly, because there are many of us who feel that there is some waste and some excess in some of those capacities. And does it make sense to give Biden more money for border security when he had an obvious unwillingness to enforce existing border law or to secure the border at all? And now we've got him talking about building some wall all of a sudden. The reason we don't have border security isn't because of lack of resources, a lack of will on behalf of the administration. You're an experienced politician. What do you think the events of this week do to the public's impression of the Republican Party? We're at a time when the president, we have a very unpopular Democratic president. Policies are very unpopular. We have indications from the polling that Actually, Republican positions on economics, on the fiscal picture, are actually much more popular than they've been in many, many years. People have more faith in Republicans. These are positive, encouraging signs for Republicans. Do the events of this week help that, do you think? Or do they create this sense that people have of a party that just isn't capable of governing? Well, I will say that the folks in the media and the political establishment who are wringing their hands and fear-mongering and crying hysteria and cries of chaos and so forth, we're doing the same thing back in January. Oh, it's taken four days to select a speaker. This is embarrassing. This is awful. This is terrible. American people didn't care. They found it interesting. They watched C-SPAN for a change. But a week later, after we chose a speaker, nobody cared that it took a week to choose a speaker. Most Americans don't even know who the speaker is, quite frankly. It's the political class, the engaged individuals from a professional standpoint who are following this closely with the American people, though, what they do want is they want spending to be cut. They want inflation to be reduced because spending's cut. They want interest rates to come down, which have been brought up because of inflation. They want affordable groceries, affordable gas, utilities, and housing, and a decent job. And they want good schools for their kids and safe neighborhoods and safe streets and those kind of things. And they want a secure border. And the Democrats are losing on all of those. They're causing much pain and suffering on all of those. Republicans are right on those. And they want a Congress that's going to fight for them. And we did not have that in Speaker McCarthy. I'd like you to tell me what difference he made for the American people this year. And for that matter, with us this week spending time choosing a speaker, what did you think Speaker McCarthy was going to do if he was still speaker that would in some way impact Americans' lives in a positive way based on his behavior in the first nine months? So we're not missing much, but we have an opportunity to have a course correction here and to get the country on a different track with new leadership in the Congress. The status quo certainly was not going to get it. That's how you get the very free trade national debt. So you think on net and on balance, this has been a very good week for the Republican Party? I think it can be. I mean, again, the status quo, what, we got 20% approval rating for Congress? So we're so afraid that we didn't keep things going as is. We didn't keep sticking it to the American people with the uniparty establishment swamp cartel. Hey, we've disrupted that. Oh, how catastrophic that we're not continuing to do what we've always done, where the American people just lose continuously. Yeah, so you do think it's a better outcome. And despite the kind of, as you say, the media making much of the drama and the chaos, people are not paying attention. That's not coming from the people. The response from the people is overwhelmingly positive. The response you've had from your constituents is very supportive? Overwhelmingly. Not unanimous, but overwhelmingly. Congressman Bob Good, Congressman from Virginia. Thank you very much indeed for joining Free Expression. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be with you. Well, that's it for this week's episode of Free Expression. Thanks very much indeed for listening. Please do join us again next time. And in the meantime, hope you have a great week. Thank you again and goodbye.